Good morning, everyone. It is great to be together in the Lord's house. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is where we're starting today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And uh, there's Bibles all around, so take one of those out and follow along as we uh, go through this section of Scripture. This series through 1 Corinthians, we've been talking the whole time about following Jesus in a fallen world, and this very succinct section here by Paul deals with this whole idea of not being deceived, and we as Christians live in an extremely, what I would call, distressing time in our nation, in our world. It it seems like wickedness is swelling stronger and stronger, doesn't it? You know, every time you turn around, you're like, good grief, what else can happen? It also seems like the church of Jesus Christ seems to be getting, in some ways, weaker and weaker. Like we're living in a time of maybe like a spiritual plague, kind of the the black death of spiritual death. And it seems like it's sweeping across the continents and, and like in Europe where the black death took out some communities up to a third of the population, it seems like the spiritual yuckiness and death is doing the same these days. And it seems like immorality in our popular culture is contagious. And the church itself, it seems in a lot of ways, has caught the disease. And we see signs of it everywhere. And, and it is a cause for deep concern. It is a cause for us to be diligent as Christians on our part. But should we suppose that any of this is new? As though we are the first generation of Christ's people that have had to face this kind of wickedness and immorality that are going on around us that's literally assaulting us? Well, when we come to our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we are kind of stabbed right in the broadside of our bodies and, and we're kind of awakened to the fierce words that serve as a warning that Paul gives. And he simply says it, Hey everyone, the wicked are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then we read carefully, as we will this morning, the the patterns of sin that Paul delineates here. And we realize that we could have taken this list that he gives right off the news feeds of our smartphones. It's like it came directly from this morning. And then you know what we understand? There's truly nothing new under the sun. Satan has been enslaving human souls with these sin patterns in every generation. And yeah, we have a boatload of technology now. We have a ton of scientific achievement that's out there, but hasn't changed, hasn't changed our basic nature at all. 
If anything, it's amplified it. Underneath all of this is the sinner who kind of stands transfixed by his smartphone and is just ingesting all of the sin that is popular in our culture second by second. And it's the exact same person really many centuries ago that stood outside the pagan temple at Corinth ready to go in one more time. Ready to watch or read one more time. Ready to go into the pagan temple one more time. You catch the picture? It hasn't changed. And the Apostle Paul here is warning us, and you can just sense he's warning with, with tears to this church in Corinth and to us today that, hey, everyone, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God by living the way you used to live. If you are not transformed from those sins, by, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, you're, you're not saved. And, and we have to be roused by these words that seem to, to kill in some way, but actually bring life. So let's, let's roll through these simple verses that are so powerful. First, we see this warning that Paul lets us know. And once again, we've been walking through the different elements of things that have been going wrong and have been taught wrong and pride and all of this in this church. And we see Paul give a very clear warning here in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he's, he's beginning this little section here with that warning. Everyone listen. You could just hear him wanting to just shake everyone awake. Do not be deceived. It's, all of this is a warning against deception. And Paul is urgently seeking out to cut through satanic deception on these matters. And once again, it is satanic. Jesus said in John 8, he, he being the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. And if you put those images that Jesus gives us together, he's a murderer by his lies. He kills souls by lying to them. You put those images together and you understand what's going on. Sin in the New Testament is personified. It's given an identity. It's perceived or it's presented as a deceiver. The sin... Sin is a deceiver. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's 
deceitfulness. Hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And what that means is progressively changing in your hearts to become more and more rebellious against God. Hardened means like less yielding, less submissive, less sensitive to the issues of the gospel, calloused hands that can't feel pain anymore. Sin deceives us into that hardened state. It's deceitful like the father of sin, the devil. Sin lies to us, doesn't it? It lies to us. It promises us pleasure. Promises us happiness. Promises us success. Promises us prosperity. But it's actually doing something so sinister, so, so awful. It's assassinating our souls. It's just a, it's a awful thing. It means to take from us. That's what sin wants to do. It wants to take from us everything. See, Satan doesn't just want part of you. He wants, he wants all of you. He wants to make your body sick. He wants to make your mind racked with sorrow and, and anguish and, and anxiety. Sin means to plunder resources and leave you penniless and suicidal. Sin approaches in disguise. It never tells us the truth about the journey that it wants to take us on. Sin deceives. And worst of all, here's the danger for a lot of us. We're self-deceived. We can actually lie to ourselves. How many of you, don't raise your hands right now, but how many of you are actually really good at lying to yourselves? We have this ability to make excuses for behaviors and attitudes that the Bible clearly condemns. We can say things to ourselves like, God loves me no matter what I do. God understands me. He understands my weaknesses. You can lie to yourself like that. It's a basic deception that Paul is seeking to address here. It's this idea that I can still be a Christian, but still live in these sins. And then that last part of verse 9 going into verse 10, he gives what I call a, a, a representative sin list. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and Paul, what he's doing here is providing examples of unrighteousness, identifying them by the sins that people embrace. And one of the things that you need to understand is that most of these practices would have been common in Corinth. Common in the Greek and Roman culture of that day. 
We're going to explain these just a tiny bit now, some a little longer than others because some a little more clearer still today in our culture. Some are, are, are more fuzzy on purpose, I believe. But you have there the idea of sexual immorality, which is uh, having sexual relationships outside of marriage, heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. Uh, Idol worship, worshiping idols. That could be worshiping yourself, setting yourself up as an idol, setting, you name it, worship just about everything, right? Adultery means the same today. Homosexual acts. Now, this is interesting because a lot of people go, okay, here we go. He's stepping knee-deep into junk. This was this is out there many years ago, obviously. And some try to reinterpret what this means to say that it's about homosexual prostitution in the temple at that time or with children at that time. And just so you know, there's this phrase out there that uh, people say, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, which is absolutely baloney because the Bible is written word and has been correctly interpreted for generation upon generation upon generation and those claims that are coming out today do not, they're not consistent with true translation practices uh, that are even true outside of the Bible. The context of the passages, it's not true to that. The universal interpretation of the passage for thousands of years or with Paul's other teaching on the subject, such as in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. And so you have that word of, of homosexual acts uh, idolaters, adulterers. Uh, now, this effeminate one, uh, a lot of Bible versions go a lot of different directions with this. And I, I, I will tell you, this word is disgusting. This is a disgusting word in the original language. And so I'm going to give it a G-rated uh, description right now. But if you want uh, more of what it literally means later, uh, you can talk to me. But Robert Gagnon, a Bible scholar who's done a lot of works on this topic of sexuality in the Bible, uh, he actually spends a lot of time on this word here. And it means males playing the role of females. Feminine behaviors. This is interesting because a lot of people will say this stuff's not in the Bible. Feminine behaviors, wearing makeup, jewelry like women to prepare themselves for the role of a woman. In our culture today, these people carry themselves very plainly. There's no wondering what's going on. And it's for a very clear reason. They're sending out a signal to other people that they want to be seen as something different. And the ultimate end of this approach and this word in Scripture is it ends up being people that will then actually challenge their birth gender and think that the gender is a matter of choice. And I will tell you very clearly, Satan is laughing at the human race on this one. 
that we buy into that. And so, the Bible's very clear on these sins, where it says uh, thieves, you know, stealing from people, uh, the greedy, ouch, drunkards, revelers, swindlers, the whole list is under their, they're, they're not, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God as verse 10 ends in that statement. And so this is that first mention of not inheriting the kingdom of God. And by saying that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's saying that only transformed sinners inherit the kingdom. Paul is stating that the wicked are not children of God, nor are they heirs of eternal life. You can see that again in Romans 8, verse 17. It doesn't mean that anyone who has ever committed sins, and once again, this is a representative list. It's not a, this is the list of all sins. There's a reason Paul picked these, because it was prevalent in the culture and around the church where they were at at that time. It's amazing, yes, that it's very similar to what is going on in our culture today. And so it, but it doesn't mean that anyone who's ever committed one of these sins is denied entrance to heaven. What makes a difference in a Christian's life than from a non-Christian's life is that this struggle against sin and the ability to overcome it is present in the Christian's life. A true Christian repents, eventually returns to God, always. If they're, if they're sealed in Him, they will return. And always will resume the struggle against the sin. The Bible gives no support, and, and hear me out on this, the Bible gives no support for the idea that a person who is perpetually and unrepentantly engaging in sin can indeed be a Christian. The Bible gives no support to that. This 1 Corinthians passage lists sins then that if indulged in continuously, drunkards, revelers, swindlers, thieves, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals. This would, if they remain in that, like, this is who I am type of moment, if they identify as that person, that person is identifying as a person not being redeemed by Christ. There's, there's no way biblically around that. You see, the Christian's response to sin is what? To hate it. Repent of it. Forsake it. And run to Christ. And we all struggle with sin. Paul is making this list very broad. Our culture today wants to narrow it down. And it's like, no, that doesn't work. 
we struggle with sin, don't we? But by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we are able to resist it and overcome. Amen? The hallmark of a true Christian is the decreasing, decreasing presence of sin in his or her life. As a Christian grows and matures in their faith, sin has less and less of a hold on us. Of course, sinless perfection is impossible in this life, but our hatred for sin actually becomes greater as we mature. Like Paul, we are distressed that sin still exists in our own flesh, causing us at times to do things that we don't want to do and looking to Christ for relief from, as he says, this body of death. In Romans 7. So if this person is actively, perpetually, unrepentantly living in any of these lifestyles that we see here, that person is showing themselves to be unsaved. And such a person will definitely, as he says, what? Not inherit the kingdom of God. But then there came verse 11. and the transforming power of Jesus and the Spirit. You want to hear some good news this morning? Do you want to hear some good news this morning? And such were some of you. Past tense. Can I get an amen? Amen. Past tense. You were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus and by the Spirit. The gospel transforms the human heart. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. When Christ comes and saves you he comes to save you completely not bits and pieces and parts saves you completely by the power of the spirit he can take out and he does take out the heart of stone gives you the heart of flesh you see things differently which is then why you start looking at sin and going man i hate that i do that instead of being okay with doing that The heart of flesh. You see things differently. You think about things differently. He changes your mind, makes you a new person. Indeed, that has to happen. That's the point of the text. It has to happen or you don't inherit the kingdom of God. There are not 17 routes on your spiritual GPS to get to heaven. There's one. And it must happen to you. You must be born again or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you can and must be if any of these things describe you. You can be a former idolater, a former idolater, a former, uh, formerly effeminate, 
person, a formal, formerly homosexually active person, formerly swindler or, or blasphemer or, or a reveler. God has the power to change you. And you are going to spend eternity, according to Paul, not as that person from the past. Praise the Lord. You will spend an eternity not what you were, but now what you are in Christ. Because it says such were some of you, that's what you used to be. But now you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The name of the Lord Jesus is central to the work here. Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, grew up to be a holy man who never sinned, who did amazing miracles, who fed the 5,000, who walked on water, who could cure any disease and sickness among the people, who raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. This Jesus came to primarily die on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sinners like you and like me. His blood was shed under the wrath of God he took on all of the filth of the former on himself and died the just, dust, the just punishment that sinners deserved. And we need to understand that the name of Jesus is everything here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Whether as Peter and John said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So, the name of the Lord, his reputation, his achievements, his story, trust in that Jesus. Believe in that Jesus and you will be forgiven of your sins. Paul mentions the Spirit of God, the power behind the saving work of God. You were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. They have equal billing here, according to the sentence structure. If it weren't for the Spirit, Jesus would mean nothing to you. You wouldn't even know His name. You would never have heard of Him because the Spirit calls you. To him. And if you're a Christian today, you owe your salvation as much to the Spirit's work in you as Jesus' work on the cross for you. They are equally vital. You are washed. Isn't that a beautiful word when you think of it? Cleansed from the guilty conscience. A brain that is washed, now pure and free from the dark, wicked thoughts, washed our filthy mind, wash our dark thoughts, our body stained with sin, washed and made clean, even the garment stainless, sin purified, made white by the blood of Christ, applied by the Spirit. You are sanctified, set apart unto God as His holy, not just His possession, His what? You're sanctified, His holy 
washed, clean possession. He owns you. He calls you his holy possession. Progressively makes you more and more like Jesus. You were sanctified. You were being sanctified. You're going to be sanctified from now until the day you die. Or if Jesus returns first. He's in the business about making you holy. You were justified. You were washed. You were sanctified. It's not in chronological order here, but all of these things happen to you. What this does mean is you are made righteous in God's sight. Declared righteous. Declared an X all of the things that we've mentioned before. You are justified. You are seen by God to be holy. And practically you are forgiven. Not just figuratively, but practically everything. 100% you are forgiven for all sin. And reconciled to God. That's a powerful verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Two quick applications. One, going back to what I called this message in its title to begin with. Application number one, do not be deceived. Do not deceive yourself that you can get away with an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle. The sinful people in verses 9 and 10 represent the type of people who are what? Not citizens of God's kingdom. If any of these sins characterizes someone's life like they are known for that sin, such a person can have no assurance that they're a Christian. Yes, Christians sin, but Christians are repenting sinners. Now, that word, do not be deceived, implies a continual action. Continually examine oneself. Satan lies we started out with that concept and he is barking at all of us through every form of communication possible and we become callous but paul's remedy is what examine yourself examine yourself examine yourself according to To what do you examine yourself? You examine yourself according to His Word, not the Word of the world. 
Who's in charge of the world right now? Satan. Do not deceive yourself that you can get away with an unrepentantly sinful lifestyle. And then number two, humbly become what you are, what you're called to be in Christ. Gospel-centered humility. No believer should be able to read verse 11 without waves of gratitude rolling over them. I mean, those, those first six words there should make us jump for joy and scream at the top of our lungs like our football team just won in the last second of the national championship or the Super Bowl. And such were some of you. It is only by God's grace that we are not described by verses 9 and 10. He's saying, you are no longer verse 9 and 10. You are now verse 11. You see the contrast? Can it be any bigger of a contrast? God washed, God sanctified, God justified. Why is it that he is a Christian? Why is it that this person in front of me is a Christian? It's it's not because you're wiser. It's not because you knew a good deal when you saw one. It's not because you're more lovable and attractive than someone else. Anyone who is a Christian is a Christian because God intervened. Are you excited that God intervened? Then you must become what you now are. What does he say? You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. You must become clean. You must become holy in your life. You must become righteous in your life. Why? Not because it saves, it saves me, but because I'm saved. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this section of Scripture that the world blatantly does not want to hear because it involves... stepping away from the lies of Satan. But Lord, you give us the power through the Spirit and the calling through the Spirit to live for you and you alone. And you change us. You give us a new heart, a heart that's no longer callous, a heart that actually now sees the sin, a heart that says, man, I am so glad I'm not that anymore. Lord, wash me, sanctify me. You've already justified me. 
Continue to make me whole in you. And what hope comes from that. We praise you, Lord, for a transformed life, for a life transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Lord, thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to have a little fun here in a second with the right hand of fellowship with uh, two more people uh, today, and Daniel's going to lead us through that. Obviously, this is a, uh, a tough section of Scripture for many people today. Wouldn't surprise me if some people stumble across uh, our live feed or our um, podcast during the week, and I may get some interesting feedback. Um, but I'm okay with that because... We need to be people that care for people. And when you care for people, you tell them the truth about what direction they're going. Right? And, um, you know, I pray, and you can pray with me, that people in the room today, obviously, if, if you need to talk about any of these things that are going on and wrestle with some of the wording and all of that, man, I'd love to spend some time with you got plenty of time afterwards but let's also pray as a church that God uses this and what a lot of other guys teach out there from his word to transform lives through the power of the spirit amen and to stand strong in the loving stance of this is the gospel and it has a power to transform you and change you to be something that you no longer or that you are now his. And uh, I just encourage you to be praying about that this week. And um, when we have people coming up, it amazes me when people come every once in a while and say we want to be members. Um, That amazes me because in our culture, becoming a member of of a body of, of believers that believe something completely different than the world says is a pretty amazing statement on people's part and so um, when anyone comes up here and says I, I, I believe in scripture I, I, this is my home man I want to I make sure that we we love them with everything we've got take care of each other with everything we've got and share that good news with the world with everything we've got amen so let's talk about 